0: unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now, looking as lovely as ever. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone. And since our show today is all about lies and big data, I have to ask you, do you ever lie?
1: You cheeky so-and-so. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. He's trying to catch me out on the air. The fact is, everyone lies. Um, I think it comes down to degrees of lies and stuff, but I'm most interested in today's interview because that is the subject of the matter. So
0: You admit it. You admit it. Okay.
1: I would be <laughs> a liar if I didn't.
0: That's true. Now, <laughs> and now you're officially on record. I've got you. Today's Spotlight is all about deception and shame. If I haven't already told you about Steven Pinker's book, Blank Slate, let me recommend it now. The subtitle to this wonderful contribution of literature is The Modern Denial of Human Nature. Pinker essentially shows that the idea of the mind as a blank slate and the notion of the so-called noble savage are gross errors. ...that have led to many misunderstandings and political fallacies. I have no intention of stealing any of his thunder, so let me just say this. Ah, this is an important read for anyone interested in understanding both the human condition and the world we live in. That said, the book reminds me of how we heap shame and blame on folks in order to manipulate their behavior... Think about this easy one. Everyone lies, cheats, and steals at some time in their life, and yet we think of this as criminal behavior. For many years, I spent a large part of my working life conducting detection of deception tests, infamously known as lie detection. There is a lot of psychology employed during an exam of this nature, including positioning an examinee According to the societal norm of honesty, as such, an examinee may well be asked questions intentionally designed to make them uncomfortable. I've helped you out with that before, introducing it to you, have I not, Reverend?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's your uh, it's your technique for making people feel comfortable.
0: Making them feel uncomfortable. You are bad. I said
1: making them feel comfortable, (laughs) but yeah, you can read into that exactly
0: what is meant. (laughs) All right. I'm going to get you after the show. Uh, The reason you might make someone uncomfortable is to add stress to their answer as a measure to compare against relevant questions. This form of examination is called a zone of comparison test. So, okay, now, Imagine that you were asked to take a lie detection test. You're naturally concerned about the accuracy of the test and the questions you may be asked. Let's assume you're innocent. And the test is supposedly to demonstrate your innocence. The examiner sits you in a plain room with nothing on the walls and begins the pretest test interview. He, she may begin with something like this. I know you came here to tell me the truth today. I mean, why else would you come? I mean, after all, I'm sure you're not a liar, cheat, or a thief. I mean, that's the behavior of criminals. You're not a criminal, are you? You respond with an emphatic no. I'm not a criminal. The examiner continues. Okay, good. Then I'm going to ask you today if you have ever stolen anything you haven't, have you? You probably answer no. And I'm going to ask you if you have ever deliberately cheated anyone. You haven't done that either, have you? Again, you probably answer no. And I'm going to ask you if you have ever lied to someone who trusted you. You haven't done that, have you? Again, you probably answer no. However, if you are thoughtful and remember lying to your mother or father or spouse, etc., then the examiner asks you to share these lies. And this would be true also if you were to say, Yes, I stole something, and Yes, I cheated something. So what follows is a clarification. The examiner says, Okay, tell me when you lied to someone or whatever. Now, following your clarification, the examiner simply rephrases the question to go like this. Have you ever lied to someone who trusted you other than what you have shared with me today? All of this is about positioning you, again, to build stress intentionally into irrelevant questions for comparison later to the relevance. Now, here's the fact. Everyone has lied, cheated, and stolen in their life. Perhaps it was a few coins from a sibling, some game you cheated at, or a story you told friends that was inflated, colorized, and are factually simply so much BS. Since everyone is guilty of this sort of behavior, and as Dan Ariely has pointed out to us on this show, continues to be in adulthood, liars then what is the guilt all about? Why are we ashamed of it when confronted in a tell-the-truth scenario? I submit that this is but one tiny aspect of human nature that we choose to pretend the truly noble savage would just never indulge in. And, of course, we're all truly noble savages, Human nature is not as squeaky clean as we might want to believe, and again, this is but one tiny aspect of behavior that we choose to ignore. In my view, the best way to know who we are begins by admitting what we are. Bottom line, we are not what most pretend to be. Those are my thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, it's... I don't know. I mean, there is so much truth in what you're saying. We... We all do these things and uh, we're all aware that it's wrong. So there is guilt associated with it. Um, And so then you have justifications based on degrees of how much of it there is. So there's just lots of food for thought in there, you know, there is. I mean, do you say, okay, that is just part of being human So therefore we should just accept it or are we supposed to be striving for something greater and so we're aware that we haven't met the standards that we would like to set for ourselves?
0: It's an interesting paradox that we live in, but only if we're in denial about it and fail to continue to work at becoming better human beings, my opinion anyway. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Dean Radin, and we discussed his work and book, Real Magic. Robert wrote, what a great show, Eldon. I have heard Dean interviewed by several other hosts, but you really drew out on these, drew him out on these fascinating subjects. And he wrote, terrific interview with Dr. Radin. Elaine commented, I think we are in a new age where we are discovering intelligence and consciousness is way, way more mysterious than previously thought. El wrote, please make gotcha an audio book. I am unable to hold a book to read it. I listen to your audio book choices and illusions a lot. My family has also been blessed with many of your inner talk programs. Well... We will be releasing the audio version soon, uh, in fact, very soon, L. and thank you for your feedback. Ye Ray wrote, hello, Eldon, I just wanted to thank you for creating the Intertalk technology to improve people's lives. It really helped me. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are, with author Seth Stevens davidowitz Now, big data is something we have discussed on this show before. Indeed, I dedicated quite a bit of space looking at how data mining can and is used to sell products and politicians and more in my book, Gotcha. So naturally, I was interested in today's guest and his book. And I must tell you, everyone should read this one. It is a great read. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Seth stevens Davidowitz is a New York Times op-ed contributor and former Google data scientist. He received a B.A. in philosophy from Stanford, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and a Ph.D. in economics from Harvard. His research, which uses new big data sources to uncover hidden behaviors and attitudes, has appeared in prestigious publications such as the Journal of Public Economics. You can Google Seth. And you will have page after page after very interesting articles. I encourage you to do so or reach out to his website. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Seth Stephen Davidovitz.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: me. It's my pleasure, sir. Am I saying your last name
2: correctly? Uh, Yeah, 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 mostly. Uh, Close Close it up. Okay, I
0: wasn't sure, you know, and and
2: I I, I, I really I feel like my last name's so obnoxious, so I don't really uh, like my parents gave me this hyphenated last name that's impossible, so I try not to criticize people who can't pronounce it because I feel like it's really unfair to demand anyone to perfectly pronounce that last name.
0: (laughs) All right, well, I hope it's okay if I just call you Seth. That'll that'll make it easy for me. All right. Yeah. On this show, sir, we like yeah. to know who's the messenger, what is the message, and, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, what are you passionate about, and what did you write a book about lying and, and big data?
2: Yes, I was, I've really been interested in a couple of things. I've been interested in human nature and psychology and what people are really thinking, what they're really doing. And I've also been really interested in data science and statistics and analysis So I kind of got, I was doing my PhD in economics and I kind of became obsessed with this idea that now thanks to the internet, you can really understand a lot more about people. So you can analyze their Google searches or analyze the websites they visit and you can learn really much more about them than we've ever previously known. Uh, So that's kind of what I'm passionate about and that kind of motivated the entire book.
0: It's a great read. As far as I'm concerned, I think everybody should read this one. It's well-written, it's easy to read, and it's uh, extremely entertaining as well as very informative. You heard today's spotlight, Seth. Lies do serve some practical applications in our world, okay? But do you think outright lying or blatant exaggeration has just become the new normal?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, we have a certain president who may be encouraging that norm of behavior, but, uh, I, I think human beings, I, I'm not sure, I think human beings have always lied. Uh, I think if anything, we're just getting a little better at measuring these lies than we used to. Uh, but I don't know if there's been that much of a change in behavior.
0: So we're better at detecting him, but we've always done him. thats That's probably very true. Uh, Again, um, I really enjoyed reading your book, so let's begin with that data. Many people completely understand what big data is, how it is used, and why the word big, if that is indeed the power word, is so powerful. So please flesh out big data for our listeners and perhaps contrast it with, well, let's contrast it with your grandmother.
2: Uh Yeah, so I think... uh... You know, people make a little bit uh, too much of big data of the term big data because you can get kind of obsessed with how huge your data set is. Do you have four terabytes of data? Do you have five ter- terabytes, six terabytes? I think uh, I don't. I I don't think that makes such a huge difference. I think what's more important is the quality of the data that you have. Uh, really valuable in- information. You have uh, people telling you the tr- truth. Uh, so I tend to focus more on the data quality than the data size. And yeah, I do contrast it with my grandma. I say that traditionally, uh, you know, we think of big data as a new phenomenon, and it's, it sort of is, but historically, we tend to rely on the elderly a lot because they'd seen more than everybody else. So they accumulate a larger data set from their personal experiences, and uh, we're able to make better judgments, better predictions based on that larger data set. The problem is, of course, uh, uh, even the biggest a uh, data set accumulated by a human being is only ten, you know, 20 or 30 or uh, tens of observations, but some of the new computer data sets are millions or billions of observations.
0: Yesterday, Twitter and Facebook execs uh, were on the Hill testifying about foreign tampering in elections, fake news, liberal biases, and so forth. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey referred to social media in general as the new digital town hall. What's your take on the responsibility of social media to somehow maintain a level of honesty that's fair and balanced, or is that really just a pipe dream?
2: I think it's important. It's good we're focusing on it because obviously Facebook and Twitter and Google, their algorithms have enormous power in what information reaches different people. And I think uh, these companies have kind of just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it's just an algorithm. Uh, so they shouldn't really be faced with regulation but the truth is that if they make a slight change in their code if they slightly tweak their algorithm that drastically changes uh, what information people see and could easily change who they vote for you know who's president of any country so uh, I think there definitely is a responsibility for these companies to uh, for, for I think that there is, I think, there is a role for lawmakers to play in regulating uh, how these companies show information. It's going to be really, really difficult, though, because right now it's done largely through machine learning and artificial intelligence, and nobody really knows how that works. So it's it's going to be a big challenge to regulate them. But I hope we do.
0: Barack Obama had an elite team of social scientists that he utilized, and they did some um work on social media uh, controlling search engine responses and then along comes uh trump and uh, he allegedly uses cambridge analytics uh, cambridge is now denied and, and and whatnot so that's why i use the word allegedly uh to also manipulate uh, rankings and information on the internet and. and You know, we seem to be herd animals, and so the data, the research data, clearly shows that as opposed to fact, we rely on others for what we then come to believe and uh, vote accordingly on. What are your thoughts about uh, the use of uh, big data, whether through social media applications or manipulation of search engines, etc., with regard to uh, its abuse in our political environment.
2: Yeah, you know, I wasn't too bothered by the whole Cambridge Analytica uh, quote-unquote scandal, because uh, as you mentioned, uh, Barack Obama was doing similar things, and Hillary Clinton would have done similar things, except her team wasn't smart enough I think, to uh, realize that they should have. But it's it, it, to some degree, these, these effects cancel out, because... The Republicans will use uh, their big data analysts and the Democrats will use their big data analysts and the net effect will be, I think, close to zero. And, uh, the, you know, I don't think it gives it, it should give a huge advantage to one party or the other. It's, it's similar to political advertising where they both spend a ton of money and it kind of evens out at the end. Uh, but (laughs) I do think that, you know, I'm more concerned with, uh, maybe some governments in, uh, less free countries, you know, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese, uh, using these tools to, uh, kind of affect, uh, manipulate the masses in, uh, evil ways. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as concerned with, uh, democratic, uh, with the democratic and republican party in, in, in Demo- in a democratic country using these tools to try to get more votes. Again, they, they've always been using whatever tools they can, uh, to get more votes,
0: so we can just kind of think of the presidential election as the big data Olympics between the two parties as they shoot it out. All right, I'll take that. Congress, once yeah, I mean, of course, it's kind of, it's kind
2: of, go ahead. It, it's extending a, th- a phenomenon that's existed for a long time. So if you read some of the work of Sasha Issenberg, for example, the Victory Lab, that describes some of the tools. I think it kind of it kind of describes the history a little bit of data analytics in political campaigning. And sometimes Republicans are better at it and sometimes Democrats are, are better at it. I think in the, uh, it, it, kind of in the Bush years, Republicans had a big edge in how they use data. This was before the internet, but they were utilizing uh, right. data that they had collected from companies on what people will purchase and how you can use this information to better predict who they'll vote for. Uh, then during Obama's Uh, time time in power, the Democrats took the edge, and they really were utilizing uh, some of the internet sources and Google and Facebook, and uh, they had a real edge in data analytics. And then I think Trump did a better job than Hillary Clinton. Uh, Largely, those were self-inflicted wounds by Clinton. But again, I think it it just goes back and forth. Uh, So I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal guy. I'm pretty pissed at Cambridge Analytica because it helped get Trump elected, but Hillary Clinton could have used the same tools to get herself elected.
0: Well, that that was my metaphor. So the gold medal of the metadata uh, application went to Trump this year. Maybe it'll go to somebody else next year. But it it just, you know, it seems to me, I guess, I share your concern about the meddling uh, by foreign countries. I've written about this in a book of my own. Um A friend of mine, uh, former chief of police, uh, late Dewey Phyllis, uh, also former FBI, uh, happened to be undercover in uh, the late 50s in Los Angeles. And uh, there he heard this um, manifesto, if you will, um, communist manifesto, not the book, as to how to... uh, break up america and and and, and by break up america it's the old alexander the great divide and conquer and when we saw what happened in this last election with the russian meddling what we really see is a polarization that i've never seen the likes of in my life before and it reminds me again of the you know the intention that you know, how how long ago is that 60 years ago the intent, seventy years, however long ago it is, I'm not going to do math right now. Uh, that's your field of expertise. Uh, still seems to be, you know, the hammer that they're they're working with when they do attack our system.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I'm concerned. It's it's not so much even that the what the Russians did; it's that the president doesn't seem to care about that. Uh, and seems to want to support, allow the Russians to do more and more of it. So I think uh, you know, I we definitely it would it w- I definitely want a bipartisan uh, commitment to preventing foreign countries from tampering, uh, using exactly as you said, manipulating people's attention in various ways. Uh, so that, you know, it, I'm, I think I think. Uh, con- Countries have always tried to influence our elections in various ways. We've tried to influence other people's elections in various ways as well. But I think what's different is now we have uh, one president and one party that uh, doesn't seem to care about this or thinks it's a good thing because it helps him and helps his party.
0: Yeah, and I guess the thing that disturbs <laughs> me equally uh, with what you're, you're you're saying is that, you know, you, you could go to a town hall and – 40 years ago, you could uh, attend some gathering with some political candidate and you you met people, you saw the people, you heard what they said. There was no anonymity. But today, the anonymity that's provided, I, I tell me your thoughts on Congress's idea that we identify people as real people like they do in South Korea, and we make sure that these are real people by you know, requiring to register through the internet and, and not dealing with just ISPs, etc., but actually tying down uh, who the person is that may access the internet in any given way. What are your thoughts on that?
2: I think that's largely a good idea, although even real people can still get in crazy arguments and start arguments and promote people. Uh, a lot of the people who've Created problems on Facebook are real people, and a lot of the nasty tone that you see on social media uh, is with people openly identifying who they are. So I don't know it's going to be a total solution, but I do think it's a, probably a, a good idea and a step in the right direction. All right. Of course, we the We did a break. Go ahead. It, it could that could prevent that could prevent good uses. You could imagine dissidents in uh, countries uh, who would want to. Pre- Use an, use an anonymous name to uh, spread, bit, to uh, provoke change in their country. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's I don't think it's, I think we'd want to maybe allow that as well. So it's not necessarily uh, a, a great to have a blanket rule that everybody has to identify themselves.
0: All right. When we come back, we've got a break coming up, Seth. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about uh, your use of porn sites to collect data and the activity of, you know, sex as it's reported on the Internet. Uh, but in light of the question I'm going to go, also think about if everybody is registered, is that going to corrupt your ability to get some of this data? Because is it going to, what, arrest the appetite of some people to maybe be on record for the things they might otherwise do? We're speaking with Dr. Seth stevens Davidowitz about his work and book, Everybody Lies. It's a great read. It's a must-read in this day and age. Everyone should read this book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at SethSD.com. That's S-E-T-H-S-D.com. One word, SethSD.com. Now, we have a video for you today featuring our guest discussing what people say about their sex lives, So if you're not already in our chat room, now's the time to get on over there. And you can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're
3: listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Many dogs and cats spend endless days indoors staring at the wall, living for the moment when you will come home and tell them you love them, take them out and make a fuss over them. Dogs and cats need physical exercise and mental stimulation, things to do and think about in order to be healthy and happy. Please set time aside for them and give them a real life and real love. For more information, please contact People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals at 757 PETA or helpinganimals.com. That's helpinganimals.com. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it, until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, my hubby has been using the stop snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft law school with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your inner talk CD Excel in exams has helped me with over 300 titles to choose from. There is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to Intertalk.com."
0: People everywhere are getting to know earthly suds company, the small batch soap artisans on the coast of Maine. Jennifer Rowland, you founded Earthly Suds 13 years ago. What makes your soap different and better than soap from a grocery store?
1: Okay, so our soaps are made of natural ingredients like olive oil, coconut oil and shea butter just to name a few. Unlike commercially made soaps, ours don't contain any waxes, detergents, parabens or sodium laurel sulfates.
0: The earthlysuds.com soaps are beautiful to look at too. What are some of your most popular?
1: Our goat milk bars called Island Sunrise and Raspberry and Cream are two of the favorites for the ladies, while Northern Woods is probably our most popular one for men.
0: So how easy is it to order on EarthlySuds.com?
1: It's very easy. Just visit our website, www.EarthlySuds.com, and also like us on Facebook to keep up with our event schedule for craft shows we'll be attending.
0: Visit now, EarthlySuds.com. Because good soap doesn't have to be boring. A
3: silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture and this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha.
0: The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website at thegreatcourses.com and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the great courses and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. Hi, this is Bill Maher. I can find humor in almost anything, but one thing I never laugh about is cruelty to animals. If you
2: don't get the joke either, right? People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, 501 Front Street, Norfolk, Virginia 23510.
1: Hi, I'm Peter Singer. Many people would like to help those in great need in developing countries, but they don't really know whether a donation will do good. They wonder if the money will get to the people who need it. Now you can find the best organizations by going to www.thelifeyoucansave.org and clicking on Where to Donate. The life you can save doesn't take any money from the organizations it
0: recommends. It's simply trying to do the best it can. Thank you. Make us part of your daily routine. Alternative Talk 1150. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Seth Stevens Davidowitz about his work and book, Everybody Lies, subtitled Big Data New Data and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. I cannot recommend this book too highly. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, a hobby of mine. And to that end, you chose today, Seth, the music Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Tell us why this music is important to you and how it informs us about who you are, sir.
2: Uh, Well, I've been a big Leonard Cohen fan for a long time. Uh, since college and, uh, Hallelujah, just really one of his, I think, best songs. Uh, it's definitely, I think it's a very dark song in many ways, and he's a dark singer and has a dark view of the world, uh, which I do as well, but he kind of also has a little bit of optimism of how you can still find some good in the world despite all the problems. And I think that really is also the theme of my research and the theme of Everybody Lies, It really points the light at some big problems in society and some very dark areas, but also, uh, I think, has an optimistic take on how we can use data to improve the world.
0: A dark one, I agree. But uh, the lyrics itself offers what you say. There's a blaze of light in every word, every hope, I suppose. Uh, thanks for the explanation. Uh, listen, um, I, I know that I asked you or, or indicated that I was going to ask you about the sex in your book and your work and your research, but before we get into that, uh, I was reminded Google didn't show up to Congress yesterday, and that, you know, that led to some rather apoplectic remarks by uh, members of Congress. You work for Google. Any thoughts on why they ignored the invitation?
2: Uh, I think Google just really doesn't need any more attention maybe. So uh, I think the business is so successful that they probably try to stay out of trouble as much as they can. Uh, That would be, that would be my guess, but uh, not totally. I'm not, I'm not totally sure uh, why why they, why they didn't go. I think they, I think, I think they probably should have.
0: Well, for what it's worth, I guess on the side, I noticed that, uh, you know, both Facebook and Twitter took it on the nose stockwise yesterday, and Google kind of, you know, seemed to, maybe the smart thing was not to go. Uh,
2: All right, we'll see. Uh, that, that's just one day, so we'll see.
0: Yeah, that's true. Let's go to your book, and um, we'll work our way into this story of sex if we can. I was most interested, especially uh, trained, you know, as a psychotherapist, uh, to look at you know your work with Freud, and uh, uh-huh. you know I think maybe there maybe you're onto something here. I you know as you point out in the book uh, some you know cigar in its association. Well, how do you disprove that? But you found a way to work around, or to do some verification of Freud's work. So let's start this way. Dreams and food. You dream about bananas. You dream about cucumbers. Well, you know, there are a lot of psychotherapists that say, you know, there's some repressed sexual urge. da
2: da 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 da,
0: da. What did you find out, and how did you go about doing it, sir?
2: Well, so this used a dream app, uh, Shadow, which uh, allows uh, tens of thousands of users around the world to record what they dream about. So they can say... Hey, I dreamed about, you know, was, there, there are literally dreams in this uh, where a man goes up to marry his wife and then he dreams about eating a banana at the same time, which any Freudian psychologist would say is a repressed homosexuality revealing itself in the dream, right? You're, you're marrying a woman but dreaming about eating a banana at the same time. But you can actually do a statistical analysis because the data set is so huge because there are so many dreams. It's not just... Traditionally, Freud just analyzed one patient and said, oh, you're dreaming about a banana while marrying your wife. That means you're secretly a homosexual. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, instead, you can analyze, mine the data from everybody's dreams and say, well, are there more dreams about bananas than, say, apples, which aren't shaped like phalluses? And when you do this analysis, you find that, no, there aren't, that people are just as likely... To dream about foods that are shaped like phalluses as they are to dream like foods that aren't shaped like phalluses. Uh, so uh, basically, I think this dream, the phallic symbol uh, theory of Freud is uh, the data suggests uh, dead wrong, that uh, it's just a coincidence. Uh, you know, if people did have a uh, war symbolizing something with their the foods they dreamed about, you'd expect to see, uh, you know, more dreams about bananas and cucumbers and uh, carrots and other uh, phallic-shaped shaped, uh, foods, but you don't see this at all.
0: Yeah, it'd be really interesting, however, and, and I found that, you know, fascinating how you did this, but I, but I also thought, you know, the statistician and myself thought, well, what if you were to be able to segment somehow admitted gays who may have at one time um, at least played a heterosexual life, and, and compared that, wouldn't that give us a better base? That's just that's yeah, an our, academic question. That's all.
2: Yeah, the data that I had didn't have that information, but that would be a good way to extend it, to basically really zoom in on more about people to learn, again, yeah, again, whether uh, whether you see certain people are more likely to. A dream yeah. of phallic, uh, phallic shapes that shaped uh, a, a dream, but I think out forever on that one. That would be a great one. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's very clear. If Freud were right that you know bananas and carrots and cucumbers really did have were phallic symbols a significant amount of the time, then you'd expect to see that they'd be massively overrepresented in dreams, and you don't see that at all. Uh, you see, there's zero representation. So, so even if the, it, the the But the ima- basically what the data tells us is if a phallic-shaped food is really a phallic symbol, it can only be true a tiny, tiny percentage of the time. So uh, just about always, and I think well, actually always, when you see a banana, it's really just a banana.
0: All right. Now let's move on to the next one, okay? Freud and slips. Tell us about penistrian.
2: <laughs> yeah. So well, I, I got this data – of errors that people make online. It's, it's it was collected by Microsoft, and they found the mistyped words. And this is not again a classic Freudian theory that you're revealing your subconscious secret wishes in the errors you make. And you do see in this data set some words that do appear to be classic Freudian slips. So one of them is penistrian. That someone instead in the data set. Instead of typing pedestrian, type penistrian, and someone instead of, uh, there are many, many examples like this, Uh, you know, instead of security, someone types sexurity. So I wanted to see basically whether these slips, these naughty slips where people seem to be revealing what they don't naturally want to reveal, are people more likely to make these naughty slips than you'd expect just by chance. So what I did is I built a bot that just made errors at the same, basically just made errors, uh, just automated errors. They just switch letters uh, in the same way that humans do. And they sometimes will slip their C's, uh, replace their C's with X's, or they'll replace their uh, D's with N's. And when you do that, you find that just by chance, People are just as likely, a a computer uh, with no subconscious is just as likely to make these naughty mistakes as humans are. So I think this is pretty strong evidence against uh, Freud's theory that we use errors to reveal our subconscious wishes.
0: All right. Now, one last one while we're on Freud before we, we get to the big question, and it's, you know, how much sex do people really have? Freud's assertion regarding sexual attitudes is formed in our youth. What did you find when you looked at that?
2: Well well that one I think he's really is on I think you know, he wasn't onto something with the phallic symbols. I think he misfired there. there's really nothing in the in the shapes of foods that tells us any in, in one's dreams that would tell us anything. I think he was really off in the slips. I don't think you can use I think these really are just random mistakes that people are making. But I think he really was on target with the uh, with the childhood influences and sexual development. So one of the things that shocked me, and I analyzed data, Pornhub gave me basically anonymous and aggregate all their search data and all the their views data. So what are the kind of what videos men and women of every age watch. And the first thing that shocked me in this data was probably the single most striking in porn, pornography data and Pornhub's data was the prevalence of incest uh, videos. And it's men, men with, a, again, a shocking frequency search for and watch videos with mothers and sons, and women search for and watch videos with a shocking frequency of fathers and daughters. Uh, so that was right... You know, it, it's it's obviously not exactly Freud's theory where you men have a repressed desire to have sex with their mother and women have a repressed desire to have sex with their father, because this isn't really repressed. Uh, people are seeking it out, but it definitely is uh, it, it a cousin of Freud's theory in the se- in the fact that men are are seem to have uh, so, some uh, deep sexual need for opposite sex parents, and women seem to have a, some sort of sexual need for opposite sex parents as well. Uh, so that's, that, that definitely, I think, was was really clo- close to, to, to stu- stuff that Freud was saying. And the other thing was childhood play, does seem to play a big theme in adult sexual desires. So if you look at, I looked at the occupations, for example, that men uh, search for in porn, and the top occupation of men of every age, whether it's young men, Uh, Middle-aged men or elderly men is babysitters and also near the top are teachers and cheerleaders and nurses uh, people that uh, men would would have been likely to encounter uh, in their youth and You also see uh, men making a lot of pornographic searches for cartoons uh, Which obviously they would have been exposed to in their youth Uh, so I think it's very clear that the the childhood years play a big role in uh, sexual development and the fantasies that adults have.
0: I found that very, very interesting. You know, and it is possible, I'll just throw this out here, it is possible that uh, it is repressed, as Freud suggested, even though consciously people are behaving that way, because that's how a lot of mechanisms work. You get these guys that are doing it, and you ask them, you know, are you doing this because of your childhood? They'll deny it. And that's a definition of repression. Yeah.
2: yeah. All right. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I can't. Just, I think, go ahead. I think it's hard. You know, it's hard from just this data. I wasn't able to go like exactly kind of exactly. This is how sexuality forms. But I think it's very clear that a lot of the areas that Freud focused on repression, as you mentioned, childhood are big themes in sex. Uh, I think he, he was right. He was He was right to focus on those areas. All right, now here's the big one, sir. But without without the porn and, and he, he it was impressive that he did it without the Pornhub porn data, uh, <laughs> you know, because obviously Pornhub didn't exist when he was around.
0: Got it, yeah. All right, we can't leave the subject of sex without asking two big questions: Are people honest about how often they have sex, and if so, or not, how much sex do people really have?
2: Yeah, so people are not honest about how much sex they have. The way I, I test this is, is if you ask men and women in uh, – the this is a general social survey, basically the biggest uh, survey about a sexual behavior in the United States. If you ask men and women how much sex they have. Heterosexual women say they average sex uh, once a week, and they use a condom 20% of the time. You do the math. Heterosexual women are saying they're using billion condoms every year in heterosexual sex. You ask men the same question; they report more sex. They report that they're using 1.6 billion condoms every year in heterosexual sex, and you can see those numbers by definition have to be the same. So we know somebody's lying. Women are saying 1.1 billion condoms heterosexual sex. Men saying 1.6 billion condoms. Well, who's telling the truth? According to Neil, neither. According to Nielsen, I got data from Nielsen, only one, only 600 million condoms are sold every year in the United States, some of them used by gay men and some of them thrown out. So basically everybody now is lying about uh, condom usage, uh, men just more than women. And that just tells us that they're, people are lying about how many condoms they're using. We don't know that they're lying about sexual frequency. But if you do the math on how much unprotected sex Americans are reporting based on scientific Evidence on how frequently people get pregnant. Uh, basically, uh, if if that w- that were true, there would be more pregnancies every year in the United States. So I think right now there's huge social prep, uh, pressures to set to have a lot of sex, and both men and women, uh, men slightly more than women, uh, exaggerate upward on how much sex they're having.
0: You know, there are times that I wish this show were two hours because the guests have that depth of information. I've got so many more questions here. I'm going to have to just start turning and dealing with some of the hotter issues in your book. So let's take on race. The common consensus when President Obama was elected led most of us to believe, and I'm guilty of this too, that racial prejudice in America was essentially over. Untrue. Please unpack what you found regarding
2: this. Yeah. So I was doing this research. So that's so a lot of my research uses Google search data. And the idea with that is that people are really, really honest on Google in ways that they're not in surveys. So if you ask people in a survey, are you racist? Nobody's just about nobody says yes to that question. And if you ask people, did you oppose Barack Obama You know, back when he was running for for president because he was black? Just about nobody says yes to that but I was shocked by how frequently Americans were making racist searches on Google. So particularly I was shocked by the frequency with which Americans were making searches with the N word. And these people were by and large millions of these searches every year, making searches for looking for jokes and mocking African Americans. And I was, I was shocked by how frequently people were making this search. I was also shocked by the location of this search. If you had asked me, where is racism highest in the united states i would have said it would be predominantly concentrated in the deep south uh, if you think of our country's history we usually think of racism as having a north south divide and definitely some of the areas where racism was highest include southern mississippi southern louisiana parts alabama and south carolina definitely parts of the deep south do make these racist searches with the highest frequency but right up there with the deeps were western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio and uh, West Virginia parts of upstate New York Uh, really if you had to divide the country into two areas based on racist searches it wouldn't be north versus south it would be east versus west so the eastern part of the United States makes racist searches with much higher frequency than the western part of the United States and this map of racist searches on Google predicts a lot of behaviors, so places that made these racist searches were much less likely to support Obama when he was running for president than they had other Democratic candidates. And in the Republican primary, uh, data journalists found that racist searches on Google was the number one predictor of support for Donald Trump. So again, you ask people, uh, why did you oppose Obama or why do you support Trump? They're not going to say, oh, because I don't like black people or I'm pissed at o- that Obama was black. But you do crunch the numbers, you see very, very clearly that racism is driving a lot of uh, voting behavior.
0: So bottom line, uh, are Republicans more racist than Democrats?
2: Well, that that's actually a co- not true. I think Repu- uh, if you look at some of the areas, so again, uh, it's not necessarily – the south and it's also not necessarily just republicans it's uh many uh northern democrats i think they don't maybe admit that they're racist but they're just as likely to search for some of this material and they're just as likely to have had problems with barack obama and to be drawn by some of the messages uh that that donald trump uh was was spreading
0: so would you say that it's equal or is it still tilted one way or the other
2: about equal Democrat-Republican racism.
0: I found that very, very interesting. You know, we're about out of time, but share with our audience, there are a number of tools that you cover in your book uh, that anyone in our our audience could go out. They they include Google, Correlator, AdWords, and do some of their own uh, searches. Uh,
2: Share those tools with us. Will you quickly? Yeah, so Google Trends is one I recommend. That's the simplest to use. And you can just see, you type in a search term, and you can see where and when it's searched most frequently. So that's really useful. If you're just a curious person, it's kind of fun to play around with and to kind of understand the zeitgeist of the world or your country or your state. Uh, And it also can be useful in your professional life, whether you're a journalist or a researcher or a marketer or a business person, uh, pretty much any field, I think there are, are insights waiting to be found using Google Trends. You can also use Google Correlate, which allows you to uh, see what searches are most correlated with a particular data set. So I'm, sorry. Bun-
0: I'm sorry, Seth. I'm going to have to cut you off there because uh, we're just out of time. But I want to tell everybody out there, you know, first of all, go to Seth's site, seths com. Seth sd.com. Get his book, Everybody Lies. What we have talked about now is in 10% of of what you will learn reading his book. Go get the book. Uh, Again, that's Sethsd.com. I want to thank you, Seth, for your willingness to share with us today and for your work. We've come to the end of another hour uh, of provocative enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com.
2: If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Elden at EldenTaylor.com.